Why do you love radio? Sitting in a little room by yourself, and it's just you and the music that you're listening to, or your own thoughts. But it's possible that you're just not alone, that somebody else is listening, and you just don't know. It's really exciting thinking that. Welcome to Radio Survivor. This is the sound of strong communities. With me here is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. Jennifer Waits joins from San Francisco, California via Skype. Hello. And uh, I'm Paul Reismandel. And we're here to bring you the show. It's so good that we're all together again yes. in early December. And It's uh, true. I love it. I have to tell everyone that we were nerding out about cassettes before we hit record. <laughs> Someday we promise to actually have a full episode of Radio Survivor only about uh, cassettes. Yeah, so email us or tweet us if you think if, if you're sorry you missed us nerding out about cassettes. But I wrote about them uh, last week at Radio Survivor. Okay, so, so that's why. I came yeah, out. talking about digitizing my cassette. So maybe collection. maybe we can get our business completed in a timely manner on today's program. We could talk about cassettes at the end, but we have too much. There's too much other things to to talk about today. Yeah, I think we should just jump right into it uh, because Jennifer visited a station that I think it's safe to say stands out remarkably compared to every other tour you've done. Is that fair, Jennifer? Yeah, it's fair. I'm, I'm actually having a hard time writing about it because I, it's kind of hard to figure it out. <laughs> Why is it such a mystery? And say the name of the station. Um, Kaichung. I visited Kaichung, which is a, I guess it's a community radio station. They broadcast over AM, very low power. They're unlicensed in Los Angeles. So there are part 15 AM radio station. And there's a lot about it that's really weird. And I love weird. So, <laughs> so weird is good. So maybe a way to set this up is uh, you, you brought us a little bit of tape of one of one of their station managers, which is something we'll get to do. Yeah. Um, kind of describing the the story the station maybe you could tell us uh who we're about to hear from yeah we're gonna hear from Michal cameron and she is one of the station managers and she also has another title minister of internal transparency and <laughs> and, <laughs> and here she is talking about i asked her why they decided to go on am i like being hyper localized Sometimes I'm not sure if I'm hearing, like, static or somebody's actual show. And it's kind of cool when that happens. So that kind of sets it up. This is going to be a show of contrasts, I think. So on the one hand, we have uh, Kachung, which is uh, kind of weird, (laughs) is the way Jennifer puts it. And a little later, we're going to talk about a couple of posts that I made to Radio Survivor in the last week, talking about how stations uh, should consider structuring their programming to make them a little less chaotic and a little bit more audience friendly. And that's and we're going to talk about it because it's got I've gotten quite a bit of feedback. Yeah, what, positive, we, negative, and neutral. How do we put it? You you threw down a gauntlet. I think I threw down a gauntlet. You, you wrote you wrote opinionated. Uh, yes, yeah, so I threw down a essays, very well, yeah, I think, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I called it, you know, 
um, sort of a, 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 a modest proposal. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. It was like a pamphlet. <laughs> you, you put out a, you put out a pamphlet. So we're going to talk Signed about that uh, later on in the podcast. There, yeah. There, there definitely was some controversy and you were even accused of clickbait. Oh, I love it. Because <laughs> I did it in two parts. <laughs> so the yeah. first part set it up and it sent a good part two days later, answered it. And just, you know, so people know uh, we don't make any money off of clicks because we don't have any ads. <laughs> there is, we, if, if only we could be clickbait. <laughs> if only we could monetize yeah. your clicks, uh, then clickbait would work. So that's, that's what we're going to talk about after we first talk about this, Ka-chung. I think, delightful station that I became aware of a few, a couple of years ago. So I've written about it uh, when I first became aware of it mm-hmm. at Radio Survivor because I think it was the um, Los Angeles Times did a story about it. And I've been a very occasional listener online because I do have an online stream. I'm aware of its existence because I have a friend who I went to high school with who launched a podcast. And as soon as I listened to his podcast, I discovered that it was in fact a radio show I have a very good idea of how this station is eclectic and unique just based on the fact that this friend of mine, if he has a, if he has a a show on it, it's clearly not the, uh, it's not Not your your granddad's community radio station. It's not, it's not a regimented station in any way. And, and they have perhaps 150 to 200 different shows Mm -hmm. and, and some of the DJs are just sort of coming in and out you know, it's not that you see that many people at a meeting all in one place ever. So it it's pretty different than a lot of places. I met with a few station managers there, and their concept of a station manager is really different. You know, often when you hear station manager, you think it's the person who's running the entire station. And they have around 40 station managers <laughs> who are... I love it. Kind of like, we're trying to figure out how to describe it, but it's kind of like a chaperone... You know, somebody who's there for maybe a few hours, they're there for their own show, and they're also there at the station kind of monitoring the equipment and monitoring the show when other people are there as well. So so the the, the 40 station managers that you describe, one of them is always in the building when right. another non-station manager volunteer is doing their show. Right. And so then they're able to report back to the other station managers if there are equipment problems or if somebody doesn't show up. Um, Although I was also told that, you know, well, if somebody doesn't show up, maybe it's not, you know, it's not like you really get in trouble, it sounds like. It sounds like a really... I'm sorry. It sounds like a really great way to ensure that you um, have an extremely open policy to let anybody come in and try something since you're always guaranteed to have someone else who's... uh, uh, more, tr- more clearly trustworthy and 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 explicitly trained is very it's close true. by. True, and they 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 talk about it sort of like a horizontal structure. Um, yeah, and it's a way to have a place that that feels very loose and creative and kind of anarchistic, but it also has like a little bit of structure so things don't fall apart. But yeah, I'd never heard of that that sort of system before, which was pretty interesting. Um, maybe if you guys could just introduce yourselves first. My name is Chris Anthe. I'm currently the general manager of K-Chung Radio. I've been a station manager, I believe it'll be three years in September. And I've also had a recurring show on K-Chung for the past three years. Uh, my show currently is Free Flow. 
and it's whatever I want, bringing on guests, uh, playing music, and that happens Friday mornings. My name is Michal Cameron. I am a, let's see, um, I DJ, station manage, and I have been officially and unofficially known as the uh, Minister of Internal Transparency at Keichung, which is a an interesting role. Um, and uh, I have a radio show every other Sunday called The Kids Are Not That Revolting. Um, I go by the DJ name Panda McFlu. And um, I think I've been here about two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, my name is Chuck Soho. Uh, I got involved with K-Chung Radio. Just when I moved out here three years ago, I just looked online for to be involved in the music scene and reached out to K-Chung, and they reached back out to me, and it's just been like that since. The shows they have are all over the map. They, they definitely have a deep connection to the L.A. art scene, and they've done broadcasts in coordination with local arts organizations, um, which is also different and interesting um, that they've done these sort of site-specific broadcasts, um, including some along the L.A. River, Hmm. And so, yeah, it's pretty funky. And, and there's some shows that have this arts orientation. There's one that's called no, where the hosts will say no, they'll yell no a bunch of times. And I guess in there, <laughs> is it staffed by two year olds? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and not, it's not for the entire show, like maybe for some portion of the show. And I guess the, the tape they submitted to get the show had them yelling no for maybe an hour. Hmm. Wow. Um, but I tuned in in the archives and I actually didn't hear them saying the word no, but I heard some other interesting things like they were reading tidbits from text that it seemed um, more like an art performance piece. You know, they weren't reading an article. They were sort of reading random bits from a text is what it sounded like to me. To me, that's really cool that you can tune into this station and hear some like pretty out there. Yeah. Stop. My my friend's show, I, I'm going to give it a plug now because it's extremely appropriate. Uh, Maximus Lansky has a show called Riffin on Kachung and, uh, or is it Kachung? Uh, his, he, Max is a painter in Los Angeles, uh, professionally, and he'll have artist friends on that are either also painters, but I'm sure anybody else that he wants. And they'll talk about anything he wants or they want to talk about, and they'll take calls. But shows that I've heard have been wide-ranging discussions of either inside baseball art topics or, you know, what was on television. <laughs> They'll talk about whatever they want to talk about. Huh. I listened uh, the other day for a little bit in the evening, and I tuned in here and there, and they were airing an interview from the 70s maybe <laughs> with, uh, with uh, Herbert uh, Marcusa, who is the Frankfurt School – German-American philosopher, sociologist, sort of post-Marxist theorist. There you go. <laughs> and followed up by the hosts sort of having a discussion about, you know, that school of philosophy. Wow. Jennifer, do you know if they ever do uh, straight-up music programming on Kachung? Yeah, they do. They definitely do. So, um, you know, with 150 to 200 shows, it's sort of all over the map. Um, they mentioned that, you know, they have some DJs who are music collectors and who play rarities, um, and old vinyl cassettes, you know, we were talking about cassettes earlier and they have sort of a 
they have a music library that I think a lot of folks at the station have contributed to. And it consisted of a lot of cassettes, actually. Some of them look like things that people had recorded themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And cassettes and vinyl and CDs. It's all over the place. I mean, and... And somebody I talked to there was joking that their record library there can sometimes look like a dollar record bin um, with people just, you know, sort of leaving <laughs> stuff there. Um, yeah. hey, spe- so that was pretty funny. Speaking of the record library, tell us more about the physical, uh, uh, what, what is this station? I, I, I have an understanding that it's not a traditional oh, yeah. uh, building. Um, and maybe we'll even hear a clip from... Um, from Chuck, Chuck Soho was another station manager who was there. In fact, I think he was doing his station manager shift uh, when I got there. And and he talks a little bit about her, his first time at the station and how he had trouble finding the place. When I first got on, it was a once a once a month, every first Wednesdays of the month. And uh, I didn't exactly know where the Keichung radio station is. I'm pretty sure everyone is confused uh, when they get here. It's, it's like a venture getting up here. And so, um, luckily, I found Chrysanthi's number through an email, even though it was, like, weeks ahead, and I called, and they're like, oh, we're above the uh, 587. <laughs> I was like, oh, nice. Um, and I thought it was, like, at the, the Chugging Alley yeah. at one point, but, uh, yeah, that was a great experience, and, every, and uh, as soon as I got up, it was great, because they were really helpful, helping me set up and make me feel like I'm welcome here. So, so I think it's, it, it's sort of like, not really hazing, but like the place is kind of <laughs> in a strange location and hard to find. And, and they had given me specific directions. You know, I knew there was a red staircase that I had to look for. Um, so I had my notes and my whole family was with me. So I was sort of like looking at my notes, like, oh, there's the red staircase. So I walked up kind of this red staircase, walked inside and, and is in it my, like a non what kind of building is that are you walking into right now? A house? It, it's sort of like I mean it's above a restaurant but like in the back. So we drove into a parking lot in the back and walked up these exterior stairs to go inside. Um and there might have been like a very small note somewhere pointing to where the station was. Um and it's an old building and and when and when we walked inside and started going in the hallway, it was pitch black. We couldn't see anything. So, and there was somebody else, it might have been Chuck, actually, who was there around the same time, luckily, and we all pulled out, we all turned on the flashlights from our phone. You know, if we didn't have flashlights on our phones, (laughs) I probably would have fallen downstairs. So we eventually got up into the building. So that was very mysterious for me, anyway, to be in a pitch black hallway. And then... Then we arrived in the space, uh, which is kind of like an open space upstairs. Um, there's a window with a view of foothills, and you can see palm trees in the distance. And it's kind of like this open sort of lobby area. And then the studio is off of this space, and there's kind of a glass sliding patio-type door that um, closes off the lobby from the studio. Huh. Which is kind of neat, so you can see into the studio, and then they can close it for a little bit of sound protection. And you know, it, and it's it's funky. You know, there's this makeshift record library that I talked about. Some random interesting artifacts inside the studio. Um, they have turntables. They had cassette deck, CD player, 
headphones, microphones, everything you might expect at a radio station. And somebody had also labeled a bunch of things on the wall, like a styrofoam cup and a record, a bunch of weird objects with like obscenity, you know, like F word cup, F word <laughs> vinyl. So it's like they just stuck a bunch of things on the wall and then put the F word in front of it. And my, and my daughter, my, my 10 year old daughter, always notices swear words at radio stations. So <laughs> yeah. she walked in there and she's like, what? <laughs> well, this is unique because in, in this particular station, um, the the guests and the on-air hosts, they can use those words. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. They're why, not... why, do they, why are they able to get away with that? Or do we want to get into the weeds? I think we should a little bit. Well, um, they're not, and they, and they sort of like being a non-licensed station um, because they don't have to abide by FCC rules. So, uh, so they will swear on They'll the air if it. they want to but, or play play things with swear words. So it's an internet radio station but it's not just an internet radio station. Yeah, cuz they're broadcasting on 1630 AM under these part 15 rules. They're they're broadcasting over very low power. You know, we talked at the beginning about sometimes you might tune in and and hear static and not really know if they're on the air or not. And I and I actually I had that experience where I I never actually, as far as I know, I don't think I caught the station over AM, but I recorded a clip off our car radio. Yeah, so you can hear the static. <laughs> and um, the car radio is your best chance, too, because they tend to have fairly sensitive AM receivers and it's outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, I hate to put um, you on the spot, but do you know is the like antenna on the top of that? particular building that i don't know yeah i don't know where the i'm not sure where the antenna is there's very severe none of our business well there's it's really there's severe limits to be legal low power uh unlicensed radio so these Uh part 15 rules okay which are set aside for the fcc are actually rules intended to regulate how much interference any given device Uh, may make in a particular band spectrum. So yes, in fact, what you, if you have a so-called part 15 transmitter, all you really have is something which generates an acceptable amount of <laughs> interference on the AM wow. band. Now the FCC knows people do this, right? Uh, so in fact, um, they, there are so-called type accepted uh, transmitters, meaning that they have registered with the FCC. The FCC has inspected the transmitter and given them an authorization that, like, you're right that this does not exceed the limits when used correctly. Um, the FCC on its on its own webpage about low power radio says, "quote On the AM broadcast band, these devices are limited to an effective service range of approximately 200 feet." <laughs> now, there's a whole community of people who, you know, try to stay completely consistent with the rules but find ways to increase their distance through all sorts of in- clever engineering. Height helps out a lot. The higher you have it up, the further it goes. Because okay. um, that 200 feet is just an estimation. It's not part of the law. Correct. It's not part of the rules for AM. The AM rules are as follows. You're, you can have a transmitter that transmits with 100 milliwatts of power, so one-tenth of a watt of power, and the total length of the transmission line, so that's the cable that goes to your antenna, 
plus the antenna and any other wire attached to that system can be no longer than three meters. Okay, now I'm a little lost. Now I'm in the weeds. So basically, yeah. you can have <laughs> a maximum of three meters so, of wire attached to your to your transmitter yeah. that behaves like oh, an antenna. That's that's funny. Oh, see, I get it now. It's weird that the rules about how powerful your station can be is based on how long your cable is. Well, because in on on any uh, transmitter, you can build more effective antenna systems right. that will effectively increase your, yeah. your transmission range. So the idea here is limit that them. that they place the limit on I how much power it. you can use and how so, long. So basically you can you can have ten feet of wire connected to your right. and, 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 and by comparison, if you were to build an AM radio station that was meant to broadcast, your antenna would be uh, tens of meters long. This this all makes me think that somewhere in Kachung's past or secretly hiding in the corners of its shadowy present is a is a real like a is a real uh, a doer, an engineer, a, a, a hobbyist. Well, you can buy who- one of these off the shelf right now on Amazon.com, uh-huh. on eBay, a number of places where you can buy an, a transmitter set up to go to work on these rules in AM radio. I mean, if you want, again, if right. you want to kind of hot rod it a little bit, you'll need somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah, you, you, you'll have to be a radio survivor listener in the first place to want and we, to do and we that. And we, we, we have folks. We know there's All somebody right. who operates Send a carrier current AM oh, no, radio station. Already. Send us another email and tell yeah, us how yeah. long we've been doing and, uh But, you know, there's a whole community of people. Yeah, I love it. All over the country, but I, uh, who do these sorts of stations? I love, I love the fact that Jennifer, having visited the station, uh, not only did she not get to meet that person who set up this equipment, but it's a—it's entirely possible that the person she did meet has never met that person. That it's such a diversified or or yeah. um, non-hierarchical structure for that station, unlike your other tours, where you're usually meeting uh, that station's most important current staff member. It's true. And, you know, and they know about the founders. The founders were Luke Fishback, Solomon Bothwell, and Harsh Patel. But I, I'm not sure their level of involvement of the three founders. Um, but, you know, people are aware of that, of that history. But it still feels amorphous and maybe like what's going on at the present is perhaps more important than how it got started. So it's interesting. And Jennifer, you asked uh, one of the volunteers we heard from a little earlier, Michal, uh, kind of about, I mean, what other stations are kind of in their milieu or who do they see as peers? Yeah. Yeah. I asked about their colleagues and, and it was, and interestingly, you know, I think we're going to hear in this clip, we heard that I heard about a station in Oakland in the San Francisco Bay area that I'd never heard of before. So, um, and you live always, in the San Francisco Bay area. So yes. that's amazing. Who do you think your radio colleagues are? Are there other stations that you guys admire or are friends with? Yeah. Um, actually, there are a couple of them that are in different places. Uh, I know somebody in uh, Oakland who just was has come by K-Chung a couple of times, like a friend of mine. That He's actually how I found out about K-Chung. Um, I lived in the East Bay, so I knew him, and he uh, was dating somebody who's involved with the station, so he'd come to Kaichung every time he was in L.A. every once in a while, 
Now he has a radio station in Oakland, uh, Lower Grand, which is doing its own thing, and it's awesome. And I didn't like, even know about that. Uh, he's been building it up, a lot of social media, and I have a lot of friends in the East Bay who've been on that station. And so I'm like defining it as a sister station and I want to go, I want to take Kate Chen on a road trip over there and meet up with them and do all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And I know there are a whole bunch of other stations um, who've been interested in working with Kate Chen. I don't know if anyone's been built up, but we have around places in LA been building like mini, or like trying to teach people about broadcasting and done um, collaborations, residencies. One was with Thank You For Coming, uh, which is a really cool organization in Atwater Village. It's sort of, like it's a restaurant, but it, eh, describe it. Yeah, a food and art space. Mm -hmm. And they, we set them up with the transmitter as part of a grant that we received and uh, they've, do, they've done a couple broadcasts, and we partnered with KXLU for an event a long time ago. What did you do with KXLU? It was like an art event, and then I think Kate Chong and KXLU presented musicians, but this was like in 2013. Yeah. We did share a DJ night at, um, at Zine Fest. The LA Zine Fest, we had like a little bit of a collaborative drink and draw at a bar that was right next to the um, event. We DJed, they DJed, we drew, we drank. It was fun. So we just heard from Michal Cameron and Chrysanthi Altman. Um, and Chrysanthi Altman is, is general manager at K Chung, as, as well as being a station manager. Um, and I love hearing about the collaborations that they're mentioning with other radio stations like KXLU in LA um, and then having a sister station up in Oakland. And it's just so clear, you know, not just in this uh, part of my interview, but throughout our discussion, they mentioned a lot of really interesting arts events and organizations, as well as these radio collaborations. So it really feels like the station is getting out there in the community on a very regular basis. And, uh, you know, I love to hear about the collaborations. Um, and I might add that Chrysanthi also DJs at a college radio station, KSPC at Pomona College, uh, mainly during, during uh, summer and winter break. And she went to Pomona College as a student and never worked at the radio station. Um, she actually started in radio at Kaechung mm. and then and then ended up uh, DJing at KSPC at Pomona College after she started at Kaechung, which, you know, often you hear about people with college radio experience first. So I thought that was kind of cool. And Mahal um, actually started out at KZSU at University of California, Santa Cruz. So it's it's really a small radio world and <laughs> I love it. Well, once you yeah, get the bug, there's only so many stations out there that'll, that you can really get your foot in the door at. So I, I can understand why it tends to be kind of a small world in that way. Oh, and Chuck, um, he got his start at dub lab, which is in LA, um, a really long time online radio station mm -hmm. in Los Angeles called dub lab. 
and and also he said that he didn't get involved in college radio when he was in college and um so it's it's kind of cool to hear about people discovering radio at various points in their life too so even if you miss the boat when you're a college student there are, increasingly there are all these creative radio opportunities that are out there I think this is a great uh, kind of moment for us to kind of transition here because we're talking about a station which is amongst the most sort of you used the word anarchic. And I think that's, that's sort of good because it, you're right. It seems to be that they have an unusual structure. They don't rely a lot on some, on a, on a super structured programming or even super structured uh, kind of staff uh, yeah. orientation or non hierarchical. Yeah. Very non hierarchical. I'm going to assume. Yeah, it seems as though, right? Uh, which yeah. which stands apart from from certainly most community radio stations, and it stands apart from most college radio stations in that way. It's hard to pull off without the right group of people. Yeah, certainly. And and two, though, I think I mean one thing that probably makes it easier to pull off is not having a license, right? Right. Because a license is, is something to which you, you know you're responsible to the federal government. Right. And there are real requirements in terms of filing paperwork, in terms of filing renewals, in terms of being responsible for what goes out on air and making sure that all the technicalities are taken care of and accounted for. Uh, You know, I'm just delighting all these things because it's a lot of things. And of course, there's real world fines that you have to pay if you do not uh, file certain paperwork correctly, if you your transmitter is is functioning incorrectly. And of course, there's always ultimately the, the risk of losing your license at the end. And, you know, and the FCC likes there to be a name on that license, uh, you know, whether it's an individual <laughs> owner or it's a uh, or it's a nonprofit corporation. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Occupy Denver five years ago when the when the mayor demanded that they have a, a, a spokesperson that would negotiate with the mayor. They elected a dog. Right. Like they, some people don't want to put a name on the leadership uh, paperwork. Right. Exactly. And and in this case, right, you know, if you have a radio station, uh, it's very, you know, that's licensed. It's very hard to avoid that. Someone's got to be in charge. Someone has to be in charge, even if it's a, right. a nonprofit. But even, you know, if there's a big change in your board of directors, you've got to file that paperwork with the FCC. It's an ownership change. Yeah. And in this case, by relying on a, you know, a transmitter which is unlicensed and, you know, obviously then being online where there's a lot fewer encumbrances, uh, they just simply don't have to they never have to worry about it. I like I'm so happy that we're talking about this station today because in a moment we're going to transition to talking about your your uh your your blog posts, your articles, your polemics <laughs> that Paul posted, where he very strongly advocated for stations to have a much more clear and strong structure for for how they function. So it's wonderful that we're giving listeners the opportunity to know that we also celebrate diversity in the community radio landscape, and we love stations like Kachung that don't have that structure. Yeah. They, yeah. they can work too, but uh, a little later we'll we'll get into. W- the other side of the coin. I'm wondering if Jennifer has another piece of tape that she wants to celebrate before we move on. Oh, I don't even think I mentioned. So I visited K Chung uh, during a summer vacation to Los Angeles. So I had my whole family with me and my daughter always enjoys chiming in and conducting an interview. So I had her talk to all three of the folks there about what they love about radio. Um, 
Why do you love radio? I love my having a radio show. I love the opportunity to explore things that I'm interested, bring on different guests, talk about things that I've read, uh, invite people who are listening to think about that as well and to respond. Um, and I love the opportunity to have a platform and begin to communicate about these issues. And I love, like tuning in at every hour and being able to hear something different and hear what someone who lives in LA, who's based in LA, who's here in the studio right now, what are they thinking about? Mm, Okay. So I think that my favorite thing, and I guess why when I got involved, I kept being involved is like sitting in a little room by yourself and it's just you and the music that you're listening to or your own thoughts you're just sitting there talking by yourself but it's possible that you're just not alone that somebody else is listening and um yeah they can hear you out they can agree and you just don't know it's really exciting thinking that it doesn't make me nervous. A lot of people, it makes them nervous, but I'm strangely comforted by it. She's coming to you. <laughs> why do you love call it? Uh, why do you love radio? Um, I like radio because I will because like to be involved with like a community, especially uh, being involved with people you have in like a common interest with like music and art. Um, yeah, I've, I've made a lot of friends just being in, like, involved with radio, for sure, especially moving from, like, another side of the coast, you know, like, not knowing anybody here, and then, you know, you share a common interest and get along with everyone here, everyone's friendly. Um, yeah. So we just heard from three of the folks at K-Chung. Um, Chuck Suhu was the last person that we heard from, and... Mahal Cameron and Chrysanthi Altman. It was really a great visit talking to all three of these station managers at K-Chung. Yeah, wonderful. And uh, you can find K-Chung Radio online at K-Chung Radio, K-C-H-U-N-G-R-A-D-I-O dot O-R-G, because I think people will want to find it. It's worth uh, seeking out and and tuning in when you want to have some – Truly free form uh, radios. It's like your it's like midnight all the day long. <laughs> and and if you That's happen right. to be, I guess in uh, Chinatown, Chinatown, Los Angeles, uh, tune your radio to sixteen thirty and drive around. Yeah, let us comes let in. us know if you ce- let's celebrate if you got it on the radio. Uh, give us a give us an email or, or tweet at us. There so, was some. They told me about a rumor. Well, not a rumor, but I guess there was a video of somebody driving across Chinatown listening to the station, and it seems to have disappeared into the ether of the internet. But that would have been fun to see as well. Hmm. It's it's uh, it's amazing, and, and, and to me, amazing that so many people that they're able to get so many people um, behind a project like this, given its sort of tiny transmitter. But of course, they're online, and I'm sure it's most of where the listening happens. Um, and that you know, and I I think it's wonderful that they're pulling it off in this unusual way, even unusual, I think, for internet radio. And so I think that's I mean that's really my jump in here uh, to to these articles I wrote. So I wrote two articles um, last week, and the first one was called "Trapped in the Grid," <laughs> um, and it is my discussion 
of why I think a lot of community radio stations are having trouble. This is what I think when I read your articles. I think you were directing a certain kind of um, strongly worded advice to a certain group of people who have the power to make decisions. I hope. Or changes or or are ready to uh, attempt to have the power to make decision changes at community radio stations all around the country. Yeah. And something I think I failed to make clear, truly, at the start, is that I'm speaking to stations that may feel like they're struggling. Hmm. So what I'm talking about is the fact that it's your tra- many traditional community radio stations. Your schedule is a bit of a patchwork. So... It, and it varies from station to station. Some stations establish something which is called strip programming, where maybe every day from like 12 to 3, it's the same basic type of programming. Maybe it's blues, maybe it's talk programming, maybe it's world beat programming. And there's a little bit of consistency. On Sunday, they do Americana and bluegrass. Yeah. In other cases, though, you might have a bluegrass show that's right up, you know, two hours followed up by two hours of African music, followed up by two hours of something else or an hour of this, an hour of that. Which would usually result in uh, you had a specific DJ that wanted to do something and that was the day that they got slotted in that they could do it. Yeah. And most, and you talked about metal versus folk music. I think, which like, is yeah. kind of like that's more my experience. <laughs> yeah, where where you're listening to like something mellow folk music, and then the next show is hardcore punk, right? And this is something which even you know for most community stations do that in some way, shape, or form. Some are more heavily eclectic, where where it's kind of like that. No matter what time of day, you might get whatever. And there are some stations that sort of regiment it, but. My concern here is, is that I, as I talk to people at stations that are struggling with listenership, and often these are not really necessarily brand new stations. Mm-hmm. These may be stations that have been on the air for a few years or more, and that they're seeing their pledge drive revenue go down or they're seeing it flat. But, you know, of course, while that sort of the donation income stays flat, costs, inflation does not stay flat. Struggling, it's a, it's, a, with, it's a troubling trend. Yeah, struggling with building their listenership, and then which also means building their fundraising base. But also, I think it's worth pointing out: it's not merely about fundraising. Because if you're not attracting people to listen to your station, are you truly, you know, are you truly affecting your mission as a community radio station? Right. The bad, the 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 difficulty fundraising is a is a canary that may be a much more important problem that not enough people. Uh, care about your station. Yeah, which of course means that if they're not funding it, it may mean that you can't have the station. So one longer. of the things I thought of right away, and I, it's, it's, it's almost like a, well, here it comes, is are you giving advice to music stations or talk stations? I Well, you know, the funny thing is that in the community radio world, I think there very rarely is there such a thing as a music station or a talk station. Right. Most stations bridge that divide. Sometimes it's controversial amongst listeners. Sometimes it's controversial amongst the volunteers themselves. But most stations bridge it. They have some part of the day set up for talk. They have some days part of the day set up for music. I thought that your advice that you were giving made a lot more sense for stations that have talk either primarily as their mission or well, partly yeah, as Let me mission. detail a little bit of what that advice is because yeah. I think if yeah, someone hasn't read that yet, they're, they're, they may not quite know what we're talking about. Um, so, so I observed the problem with, with the patchwork schedule is that – and this is, I think, this, is a, this is actually something I've been thinking about for 20 years. And that is a community radio is something you have to learn how to listen to. 
And that is a fundamental lesson for everyone in community radio. That way we train someone to learn to listen to the radio is that one station, one channel equals roughly one format. So you know there's a station for for country. You know there's a station for classic rock. You know there's a station for like NPR news. You know there's a station for conservative talk. And you treat radio that way. And it's not merely treating it that way from the standpoint of I want to listen to classic rock so I tune there. But also if I'm scanning the dial and I hear a station playing something, the immediate assumption of, of someone who's not familiar with community radio is that's the X station. So if I spin the dial and I hear hardcore punk, I'm going to think that's a hard rock or if I know what hardcore punk is, it's a hardcore punk station. If I hear folk, I'm going to think that's a folk music station. And if I'm not into either of those things, I may never, <laughs> never try back. Again. It doesn't mean I'll never encounter the station again. But And this is and you're talking about sort of a naive listener, you know, cuz I and I know I recognize that I'm not a naive listener. Yeah, I mean but, that's exactly who I'm talking about. You know, cuz I have as like a non-naive listener um I my experience is mostly in music oriented stations that play a wide array of genres. So when I'm flipping the dial and I hear folk or I hear punk or metal, I might think, Oh, this is a college or community radio station that's focused on a wide number of genres. But you're not the problem. I mean, you're not the, you're not the listener. Who's a problem. You're thinking about uh, someone in their very early twenties. Or, I mean, I'm thinking of anybody. But I'm but 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 if you're thinking about a station growing its listenership in a way in which it's sustainable, meaning you're going to have a listenership that stays with your station for the time that they're in your community, you do want to be thinking about young people. Right. But are you making the argument that uh, that stations should only have one genre of music? No, no, that's not at all it. Um, and, and so it's, uh, there's sort of two pieces. The first piece is, is that critique, right? That community radio is something you have to learn how to listen to and that because of that learning curve, somebody has to have an incentive to put that effort in as a listener, as a listener, as a listener, you know, and that's the thing that we can no longer count on 20 years ago. Let's say it's 1996. The internet as we know it exists, but there's just streaming radio, streaming audio has more or less just been invented and so it's not very accessible. No one listens to the internet for fun. For the most part. They read it. There's no such thing as a smartphone. Uh, mobile internet mostly doesn't exist for the average person, right? So the internet as a multimedia entertainment platform does not exist. So if I am somebody who wants to uh, check out some different sounds, the radio is one of my top places to look. It's free. Radios are cheap. It's super accessible. So let's say that I'm a semi-naive listener. Okay. So it means I'm not merely like, I don't understand this. Uh, I I don't think that I'm only going to get like pop music on the radio. I know there's sometimes these other things, but I'm figuring it out. I'm going to check it out more often because I don't have a lot of other options. Yeah. Right. If I want to learn more about African music, I'm going to have to take a class read a book, 
go to the library and take out CDs, or I might be able to find that show on the community radio station. And community radio, in many ways, is appointment listening, right? It is programmed for people who like, oh, I want to listen to the labor hour and I know it's always on Saturday mornings, so I'm going to tune in. Or I'm really into their metal and I know it's like Sunday nights at 10 and I'm going to tune in because I'm driven. I really want to hear this thing and, and that. And then the other side is a much smaller group of people who are sort of like, I like everything. Yeah. Right. And that's probably me. It's it's probably you, Jennifer. It's probably But we have to survivor. admit that that's, you know, while we wish the world were all like that, that it isn't necessarily like that. And that community radio, if it only serves that tiny number of people who sort of like everything, it it may be serving a declining population. You but know what's um so go ahead. You know what you're making me think of is there's some stations, community stations and college stations that have pretty eclectic schedules. Um, And then when it comes to fundraiser, there might be a handful of shows that get a lot of the donations. Yeah, and that's that's Um, a real problem, actually. And, you know, I know of a station that lost a show that brought in a lot of money. And then how that gives you a different glimpse into who your listeners and who your donors are. Right. And you still might have a lot of listeners who maybe aren't donors. Right. Um. You know, but that that's kind of a glimpse into what you're talking about that it's there might be people who are just tuning in for a particular show that has like wide appeal. Right. And I mean, that's been a problem for community radio, period. Right. This is this is not a new problem, which is why I've been thinking about it for 20 years. But at least in 1996, you could sort of assume that a certain number of people would explore the FM dial looking for new stuff and encounter your community radio station. You had more second chances. Had a lot of second chances. Now, if you want to check out different sounds, Spotify is there. Yeah. Pandora is I, there. I mean, you, YouTube is there. There's a, and, 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 and not only are they there, but you know, satellite you, radio, satellite radio right. when you get to things like YouTube or you get to things like blogs, often it's also curated. Like people make playlists on YouTube. Yeah. There are radio shows on YouTube or Mixcloud or all sorts of other platforms where somebody can zoom hone in. And instead of saying, gosh, when is that African music show going to be on the radio station? Oh, it's on Saturday at three. Oh, that's the same time my kids have swim lessons and I can't listen to it then. So I'll yeah. never hear it. You can just type in to a, a Google search African music and be bombarded with plenty of things that'll probably suit what, your what, listening. What I would do is find out what the name of that DJ is of that African music show, follow them on Spotify, and then listen to their Spotify playlists. If they have them. But yeah. that's a lot, right? right. I mean, you're, I mean, that's the thing. That's, my, that's how I listen to radio it, now. Is that, we're, is that community radio, in a way, is asking its audience to have to learn a lot and make a lot of effort to use it. So that's the problem. What, it, you offered a solution. Yes. So my solution is, is for stations to begin thinking about their drive time programming in particular. Mm. Drive time roughly 6 to 9 a.m., 4 to 7 p.m. This is, we know this, this is not... It's a fact here. This is a fact yeah. here, that this are the two peak radio listening times in the United States. Probably also Europe and Canada. This is when people are in their cars, commuting to and from work. And this is where why I pick those particular hours in particular, because this is one, your your biggest potential listenership. But two, when people are 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 looking for something predictable and consistent. 
So what I am not, people who didn't completely read the article sort of say, are you just going for homogeneity, right? Are you just looking for, right. for us to become Which the You've been all- thinking about this 20 years. People have been arguing about it. For no, that's that right. Long exactly. Well. You know, are you do you just do you think we should just become all news talk? Should we just become all folk or something? And I'm like, if yeah. that's the station you want to have, then do it. Yeah. But if you're really coming from that sort of community radio eclectic position, that's not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating, though, is you take those blocks of programming and you make them consistent. Talk is one of the things I propose because if you look at a lot of community radio schedules, especially in that afternoon drive time beginning around four, that tends to be a block of news talk programming, Mm -hmm. usually anchored by something like Democracy Now!, other programs often will be in there as well. Other syndicated, sometimes from Pacific or elsewhere, or locally produced talk. And I think that putting uh, using that as as part of your anchor is great. I think I want to remind people again that you're making the argument for stations that are struggling, and also for stations that don't already have a strong let's say, musical identity. You're not saying music stations need to switch to talk no, 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 not at to all. succeed. Because I think you could take the same principle and apply it to music programming, okay. right? Which was one of the confusing things about your article that you tried to take on both. It's uh, very hard, yeah. To there's take so, on talk and So many of the critiques are based upon the fact that it's hard to do all this in two articles. But, um, <laughs> and, and so, but the thing is, is that often even in these public affairs blocks, that uh, strip that people will have, that stations will have, it's actually still atomic, it's still eclectic because what will happen is they'll say, well, we run democracy now at 5 p.m. And then at 6 p.m. on Monday, it's it's like an hour of literary arts. And at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, it's the labor hour. And on 6 p.m. on Wednesday, it's an hour about environmental news. So that I as a listener right. – and on Thursday, it's Joe's hour, and right, Joe who, does what Joe likes. Right. Joe talks to whomever he wants to talk yeah. to. I don't know what to expect. And so how many encounters do I have with the thing that immediately doesn't seem like it's for me? Let's just say I'm, I listen to, to, to Democracy Now! I love Democracy Now! It's great news. It's, I feel informed about the world. And now I'm being told about literary arts and it's not news. I don't really care. And you can say, well, maybe you should. But the right. fact is that sort, of, <laughs> that sort of scolding doesn't work to build listenership. So I go, well, no, I always, I always tune out after Democracy Now! because it's usually a literary arts program. Well, it's only on Mondays. I don't know, man. Like whenever I tune in, it seems like it's the literary arts program. I'm not making tick marks in my calendar and keeping track for later reference. Again, you're asking your listeners to, to, to become community radio experts when they might not uh, have that energy or time. Or, right, when they don't even know why they should. They're not really being given an incentive to do so. And, you know, so a counter argument as well, you know, are you just asking us to dumb it down? Are you just asking us to uh, make it lowest common denominator? And, And the fact is, absolutely not. Because part of the argument about building listenership is that there are people out there in your audience who need to hear community radio. Who are, uh, who, for all sorts of reasons, whether they are in communities that are poorly served by mainstream media, or they are perhaps in communities that are well served by, by mainstream media, but really need to hear the stories of people who are not. And you're missing those folks in a lot of different ways if it's difficult for them to listen. And so instead, I suggest that stations begin to adopt something like a magazine format 
for their if they're going to do a news talk kind of thing. And they can anchor it again with syndicated programming. You leave that be. And then in the time around it, instead of saying this will be the labor hour or this will be Joe's hour or this will be you know, somebody – The Native American-focused half hour. Instead, say, well, we will pay attention to all of those audiences and communities and issues in turn in this magazine. So maybe you have a consistent host and they, they sit down and they say, well – uh, on Tuesday, we're going to interview this person, and uh, and we're going to have we're going to bring in this piece from Free Speech Radio News, and we're going to bring in this piece from a local podcast, and we're going to bring in this piece, but we're going to tie it together in a knot, a lot like All Things Considered. Yeah, you and know, and I know that 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 a lot of people again their their antenna yeah. go up and start vibrating when I say that. But I see. Here's here's what I thought of when I read your article and got to that part where you offered your solution for the magazine, and. Uh, and and when I when I was thinking about it in a way that would uh, be agreeable to me, uh, I it, my my I I went to one of the first uh, examples I I know of as a radio person when I thought that here was a show that I liked, but I never okay. So it was there's a there was a program on on KPFA the station that I worked at and listened to religiously that was a half an hour a week for uh, Native Americans you know programmed. And and hosted by Native Americans, they talked to Native for Native Americans, and it wasn't until I was working within the station that I gave it any time of day at all. I was actually working for their show that day, sitting at, behind the board when I finally listened to their show for the first time. And the reason I didn't do it prior to that, despite the fact I loved the station, was it just was so hyper focused on something that wasn't me that I didn't give it the effort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, so thinking about that show that I then learned to appreciate because I had the patience to listen to it more than once, um, taking some of those producers and putting them in the chair for this uh, magazine that you're proposing and allowing them to to do their show on a wide range of topics, including the Native American topics that they care about, on the days where they have something... Mm-hmm hot and necessary. I mean, you know, now it's so clearly, it's so obvious that I wouldn't, you know, the, the North Dakota pipeline project is the most important story in the United States, arguably. So, and yet we don't hear it reported from native voices, right? Right. And you might, if you're listening to the native American program on, uh, KPFA. And, and I'm certain there are some people who are not from that community who seek it out now because they want to learn more. Yeah, but wouldn't the there be wonderful if instead of somebody having to seek it out, if just part of their regular daily listening while they're in mm-hmm. their car, they got a story or they got a segment taken out of that show and placed oh, instead into a magazine. I was just thinking that the host yeah. of that show uh, – on one week could be talking to, you know, of course, uh, environmental activists who didn't have a native American focus sure. or, th- or they'd be talking to, um, local homeless advocates or they'd be talking to, you know, I you, think there's a lot of ways to do people it. to host the program and it doesn't always yeah. have to stay, uh, what I was in a box. Are you thinking about it? And, and you're probably thinking about a lot of ways, but as we're talking, I'm imagining a show that could even be a teaser for other shows that you have. So it's, you know, clips from different shows put together like a magazine, which is a cool idea as kind of a gateway so that people might hear a variety of snippets of things and then they may seek out 
like a more in-depth program that focuses on yeah, a particular exactly. topic. Yeah, exactly. The way I'm looking at it is is um, it's a, it's it's sort of a big principle and I'm I'm trying not to be too prescriptive in terms of what you do and don't do. But the idea would be that as a listener because this is the thing Community radio stations tend not to be listener focused. They tend to be focused on programmers. Ah, yeah, this is the one idea you didn't talk about yet. When you can program your convenience, what you think you should do, and then, you know, is it sound like a good show? Is it represented elsewhere? So often, and and I'm not going to, you know, it's not, I'm sure there are stations that do this more than others. So often the question is not, who's your audience? Why do they need this show? Will they be able to listen when your show will be on? And how do you know this? Because we do it much more into like, well, I just put it out there, man. And maybe someone will find it. This is what you referred to in in your article as uh, the public access model. Like uh, the most important thing at our station is that we are open and available. And anyone who, who has the burning desire to make radio and should make radio can make radio versus the public service model, which is we serve this listening community and they're our primary. Right. And, and we do it in these ways and it's attention. Yeah. And what I, and I, and I call it out as attention yeah. and I don't think it's one that stations have to resolve, meaning they, they don't have to, at least if you're already sort of set up on a public access model, which is most stations, I'm not telling you kick everybody off the air and start fresh. That's going to do no one any good. You're going to lose a lot of really talented people. You create a lot of, a lot of alienation in the community. That's not what I'm suggesting, right? So it's not go rewrite your schedule, but it's to begin the dialogue with your, with the people there, with your programmers, moving some of them towards this model of public yeah. service where, and, and, and one of the big structural elements to that is that the idea that this is my show and my little real estate of airtime starts to go away, at least in like drive time at the very least. That, that, and, and I suspect some programmers that they feel like they will build their audience and may actually you know, grow what they do will be – amenable to that with will, will be and will give their consent and some may not. And my opinion is start working with the ones who will work with you and you can worry about folks who are less open to the idea later. And if you can build success, even one day a week, you start having a model you can replicate. But the idea becomes then if you define, let's say your afternoon public service strip and it's news and public affairs, and you say it's four to seven, that that's nobody's show. It's not Joe. It's not Sally, right? It's not Luther. It's, it's four to seven belongs to our radio station. And the radio station is programming it for our listeners. And so, right, it will be a magazine. And we're going to find competent hosts. And my suggestion is to go look in communities where some where you haven't yet. So again, instead of it being sort of who any, comes through the any, door, comes through the door, motivated. being more proactive. Um, go out my, and find the people. In my perfect world, you could pay people, okay. and you pay them one because it helps to make things consistent. But there's a much more important second reason, and that's so that you can invite people on air who can't be on air because they can't otherwise spare that time to come be on the radio, but who, if they were able to have their costs covered, who are able to do so for perhaps a living wage, uh, 
somehow would be able to do so. So about, again, if really being attendant to this idea that community radio is here to serve underrepresented voices, understand that economics is part of what excludes people in this way that seems very passive because they simply would not have the time to volunteer to do radio, but who might be able to do so if they had childcare. Um, you know, so it could be any number of different ways. It doesn't have to be necessarily strict dollar payment, but ways in which you provided them with that extra leg up to do so and to put them in those hosting slots or those producing slots as a way to begin also training people to do this. I realize it's a big lift. Like I'm not proposing something which I realize just happens overnight um, and not every station is in a position to do it. And I, I really, well, and that's, and that's ahead. what I keep thinking too, is that um, this type of show is quite labor intensive, but is so. it, more, I, but here's, here's the challenge. Is it, is, will it take more labor? Let's just say that, let's just take, for example, let's say you have four to seven every day. And the first hour is democracy now and two hours are locally produced public affairs. And each one is an individual show. Okay. So that's 10 hours of radio. And, and let's say they're each an hour long. So that's at least 10 volunteers. That's at least 10 hours of labor that's being put into that show, except for the fact that any one of those volunteers is likely putting in more than one hour of labor into their show, right? They got to book a guest. They're going to book guests. They're they going to better read. book a guest. Oh my prepare. God. It's not going to work otherwise. Right. So you can have some who are do less, but I'm going to say that let's just say for the sake of argument, each of them puts in three hours of labor for that show every week. So now we take that. That's 20 hours. I'm sorry. It's 10 hours of programming. That is actually 30 hours of labor. Well, if you take 30 hours of labor, you might be able to begin pulling off that show, but it requires people thinking differently about what they're doing with their time. Right. And a little less of the, I'm sorry, I'm going to put it this way. Me, 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 my show. And a little bit more of our station. Yeah. I, our, I, our, our cooperative effort. Does that make sense, Jennifer? Am I, am I, you know, in that kind of breakdown, does that sound cockamamie or am I, am I somewhere in, in, in the range of making sense? Oh no, you're making sense. I think, um, I'm, I'm reflecting on a similar show that happened at my station at KFJC. When I was first there, it was called says who news. And it was a really great public affairs show once a week. And, and people produced segments for it. So they were all pre-produced short, maybe like two or three minute stories. Um, and it was really cool, and it's kind of like what you're talking about, where it had a lot of different voices from the station, a lot of different stories. But since it had so many small stories within, I think, an hour segment, um, it required quite a bit of work finding the people to do these pieces every week. Yeah, and I would uh, counsel against that, right? So if we think about it in, in sort of I – would, I would begin to think about it as what is, what is the lowest – effort we can put into this and make a very consistent listenable product right book a guest have a host open the phones yeah not terrifically different in some ways than we do this podcast although probably a little bit more effort than what we put in week to week 
Got um, it. But right, so just imagine this. So imagine instead, right, you say, okay, over this two hours, we've booked three guests. But we also know we pulled us, uh, we have a segment from Free Speech Radio News. We have a segment from this other news service. And we, we took have, this thing off YouTube that we found right. that we got permission. And then we're going to read headline news. Right. So we've got some headlines that we've we're AP or we're we're NPR affiliates. So we're going to pull the headlines like you can begin to assemble this from a lot of different parts. And then, oh, OK, so and so from uh, the Labor Hour contributed this interview. They did. They aired on their show last week and allowed us and allows us to do it. So instead of having to sort of produce. So instead of having to make it this American life. Right. Which is a, a super labor intensive sort of program. We make right. it easier. You're and, talking more about live public affairs. And, and and to be fair, a lot of stations do this. This isn't an original idea. A lot of stations do this for an hour or more. Um, my and my only advice to them is is to try to approach it as a listener and say, is it is it listenable? Is it consistent? I think sometimes it's exactly ambition gets in the way of listenability where we try to pull too many segments together, try to do too much in an hour when maybe you'd be better off just having a few interviews and, and you know, and as opposed to trying to cover, you know, the world in 60 minutes, try to cover a couple of topics in 60 minutes. So what's, what's been, what's like been the, uh, the strongest pushback since you posted this. So the strongest I think pushback is folks who really love eclecticism. Yeah. You know, so uh, some concern that I don't really take it up. So, so I want to say very clearly, I do say in my, in my piece, but, and I've said here, I'm not counseling shows stations to become duplicates of NPR programming or to become all one, one genre or all one type of programming. Some small stations can afford to be super eclectic. Yeah, I think, and I think that that's important. And I think that, that there's a dividing line of the stations that can't afford it and can't. But, um, but that I'm not saying you shouldn't be eclectic. I'm saying you should take this three to six hours a day and make them so your morning and evening drive time. I still think that, that, that your argument works a lot better. It's a lot stronger for the stations that are a mix yeah. of talk and music. Than, than a music station. Because I think yeah. the music stations are already strongly, their identity is that you will hear folk next to metal and it'll be fine. Maybe. And that's my question, right? right? And that's why... And, and that's, I mean, that's, I think like some of us at stations like that, you, you probably got pushback from people who felt <laughs> defensive because their station is like that. I love and playing like folk and metal. Yeah, and at KFJC, I figure people are tuning in because they don't want to hear mm-hmm. the news right now. It's yeah. an escape. Yeah. And that's, um, and, and I think that's really, great. And we really don't have, um, we have like two public affairs shows. But do you so have a problem? Not, uh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, no, but that's it. So that's my question. My, and, and, and because my, my answer is if there's no problem, right. then no problem. If you're fundraising, yeah. to if your listenership to the and your fundraising are meeting your needs, are you sustainable? Do I mean, you know, not are you are you meeting your wildest dreams, but are you sustainable? Are you feeling like your yeah. operations are consistent and supportable and, and the yes. listeners right? And then I begin to say, well then fine. Like I'm not saying that I, I I'm really and this is a, th- a point I didn't make clearly enough, admittedly. 
is I'm talking to stations where they're not feeling like their fundraising is where they want it to be. They it's need declining advice. Or Paul's giving to advice grow. to people who are looking for advice. Or, <laughs> You're not or, <laughs> or don't know they need the advice because yeah. they're, because often what, what I think a lot of stations, they do the, you know, they, they then say, well, well, we need to find some other fundraisers, but people won't support things that they don't listen to and don't know about. And, and often think- that's what's getting in the way. I think you make, I don't know if you make it explicitly, but I think you make the good point that stations need to reflect on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, no matter where you are, it's always good for all of us, even if you just have a radio show, reflect on what you're doing. Don't just do the same thing over and over again. And I do want to follow up on the eclecticness thing, right? Because I said to Eric just before, there's a there's sort of a dividing line. And in in my observation, Stations in large metropolitan areas often have the luxury of being more eclectic and sort of more and, and less sort of focused because there's just simply more listeners. So I'm going to say that there's probably in any given metropolitan area a small percentage of people, of listeners, potential radio listeners, who are into it. Who, who actively embrace those it. are my people and then there's maybe a little larger percentage <laughs> weirdos. who are okay with the idea of appointment listening right who so they're like i don't like everything on the station but boy that that six that three to six on mondays that rocks my world is brilliant i'll listen to that and if that station reaches a potential listenership of 1.5 million and you are still only reaching fewer than one percent that's a lot of people and really the cost of running a radio station in San Francisco versus running a radio station in Omaha isn't, is, isn't super different, right? You have little costs like, like mostly related to there's probably uh, rent is a little, is going to be higher obviously. And there may be some other costs, but mostly it doesn't cost a ton more to run the station, but you'll have more people there to listen. And so I think that, that in a, in a big Metro, you, it's easier to do that. But if you're the community I, radio station for a small make, town, like, sure. Um, but you know what? I think about like a really tiny town and a low power FM station in a town of a few hundred people. And some of those stations are some of the most eclectic programming wise that I've ever seen. Yeah. The, the uh, station in Arkansas that you just visited, but, but is it sustainable? Or no, even, even tinier towns hmm. where, um, you're hearing religious programming and you're also hearing like a really funky sure. retro 50s show, 50s music show. Um, like those are the stations I kind of wonder about where if you're in a small town, you have to serve so many different needs that sometimes those stations are just all over the map, which well, I well, think is I'm one not, Yeah, I'm not arguing against serving all of those needs, right? I'm merely making the argument that you should choose some times of day when you're very focused in your audience and what you do. Not that you shouldn't have a religious program on Sunday followed up by uh, a different program an hour later. I think – I'm not sure if this was a 100% clear, but I, I, I happen – having sat here uh, for 73 episodes across the table from Paul and had these conversations both often on the air, I know what's happening. I think part of the subtext – is that Paul and myself and everyone who's ever worked at a radio station or volunteered or loved one from the inside has has uh, um, come across a certain kind of conflict about um, 
some people, you know, I can think of one in particular that is sort of heartbreaking just in my memory of a radio station that I worked at where a group of uh, people who are doing amazing work uh, in in the 7 p.m. time slot were asked by a, by the boss to move to the 11 a.m. time slot. And the purpose of that was to create a stronger, more consistent block of news and public affairs talk programming and to move this the the because currently there was a sad little island like a leftover little orphan of world music in that in that time slot in the morning and the the grand vision was to move it to the evening when there was a lot more music on this radio station and one programmer in particular who had an, an amazing program a good show that everyone was very proud to call part of our station, uh, refused to go. He refused to move. And the entire vision of this change that was a positive step in the right direction, in my opinion, uh, was was killed. It was over. It, that never happened. And if if the station had been functioning more along the lines of what Paul had well, mentioned. Well, it's coming together and thinking about it. And, and, and so, Jennifer, you mentioned the, sort of the point of like these little eclectic stations that are in small communities, right? I mean, and, and again, that's why I say if there's no problem, there's no problem. So my question is, is it sustainable? Is it seeing support from its community? If so, then no problem. I will also say that if you're in a small town, and these are probably mostly rural, that is completely unserved. So not just poorly served, but probably completely unserved by a full power radio station. You got elsewhere. a lot more wiggle room. Not yeah, only that's that, what I was thinking of. Everybody, like tiny rural station. Everybody in that town has a very high incentive to learn how to listen to community radio, right? But if you're somebody who, let's say, is in in a suburb of a of a large metro, you just care less. I mean, let's just be frank. The, the, you know that that is really how people are and how they listen. So I think that, yes, the, the reason that it's why it's really contextual. So I think that, yes, uh, very eclectic stations work, can, can often find their footing in large metropolitan areas because there's enough listeners who are going to be into it to support it. And that right. sometimes a, a, a super eclectic station, because in often the, a small low power FM like that may also not have much of an operating budget. So it may not take very much to keep it operating. Um, you know, it may not have much in a way of professional management, which is fine, right? Like that's not a problem. It's a class of station and it's wonderful. Um, is serving its community in a way that, not, that nothing competes with it in, a, in, in any real realistic sort of way. It may also be able to, to cut along. But I talk to enough stations often in sort of – you know, we're in listening areas of a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand people, fifty thousand that are really struggling because they have enough commercial radio, usually licensed, that they have your you know, they'll have stations that serve that city or that town pretty well. I mean, as well as anywhere else. They'll often have a public radio station. So they'll have that service as well. And so and then people have internet and people have all these other things that we're talking about. And I think they're the ones who who really fall into this breach. Cassette decks in their cars. Yeah. They're the ones who really fall into the breach. But I think there are stations also in bigger markets, you know, uh, markets of, 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 you know, half a million and more that also fall into the breach. I mean, we, we saw it recently happen down in Santa Cruz, 
right, with a community radio station that was unable to keep it going and unable in its last hours to figure out sort of a way to reprogram itself so that it could, you know, get back on air sure. and and so maybe in that case, if they had taken this advice that you've just offered to the internet to heart before the eleventh hour of their crisis, they might have had a better chance to to reach a solution sooner. I think we should open the phones. I think now it's time to open the phones so we can hear from the listeners. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'll make a few more a few more points uh, because again, you know, I, I well, I, I have to say that look, I want eclecticism to reign. And I think if a station makes it work, they make it work. So I am not arguing that your station should change because I'm smarter than you and I know about the future and I've seen it and I'm come back from, you know, 2021 <laughs> to report back that. But, oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm so glad we still have a future in 2021. Well, I mean, it's still President Trump, but uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um but uh, because he got a fourth term, a third term. Um, anyway, I'm rolling. It's a my terrible joke. Uh, but you know, I think that that turning around and thinking about this, and it's considering it. So I'm not saying you need to wholesale adopt anything I'm saying, but reengaging of this question: how are how will people listen to us? What are they looking for? Yeah. How do we? And then how do we keep them listening so that they become? They, they want to become part of our sort of smaller community radio community. I, I think your strongest argument, and you sort of buried it, but it was necessary because you had to set the table. But I think your strongest argument in the, in your two pieces was that there's an unspoken tension of do we let everyone into the station, the public access model, uh, versus public service. Why are we making radio? Is it to make ourselves happy or is it to serve the listeners? Yeah. That unspoken tension, um, when it's not... Uh, when it's when it's when not it's implicit, yeah. When it's implicit, but when it when when the people who have power at the station are not fully engaged with that tension, when they when they don't keep their eye on it, when they don't keep control over it, and when they don't have um, a lot of times, when they don't have a uh, a clear policy about what it is, do we are we here just to let everybody who's nice get on the radio? Which we understand. You know, I, I, I'm gonna. I, I do have to put a rejoinder on that. Letting everyone in the door isn't actually everyone. That there's a whole lot right. of people that you're leaving out, not on purpose, but because they don't know about your station. Yeah, because they haven't found the thing to listen to and don't know it's for your them. Your station's located in a part of town that's different from the part of town that all those other people live in. Or the 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 realities of their lives means they can never make it to one of your training sessions orientation sessions, et cetera. Yeah. Right? Jump through all your hoops. Right. And that's not saying you shouldn't have all that. It's just rethinking that is even the public access as accessible right. as either we would like it to be or would we would want it to be. And again, your station may be doing fine, but I think if you're at all in tune with your fundraising, I'm going to ask you the question and I have to credit Bill Turner who is uh, somebody who who said this in a comment on on Facebook and a discussion was happening there? He gave me he gave me permission to mention his to to to, to say this was his and he's a uh, veteran broadcaster but working in, in LPFM and he said yes he sees a big problem with cherry shows as he calls them and these are the and I, these are the shows where they make a disproportionate amount of pledge drive revenues. Right, so they're making much more money than other shows, which means that. 
one, if they go away, usually means an immediate loss of pledge drive revenue. Or two, sometimes those programmers then start to believe that uh, you know, they're more equal than everybody else, right? That they're one of the bigger pigs in the sty. Um, and both are problematic. And I think if you're sitting there going, oh, our station does fine, our pleasures are, really, are doing really well, ask, when is that money coming in? Is it coming in, you know, and, and is it coming in sort of equally or is it incredibly disproportionate? Because it's incredibly disproportionate. That is an indicator that you're super serving a particular audience, possibly at the expense of other audiences, but at least not super serving them. And here's a challenge. And shouldn't most of your pledge drive money come in at the times when most people listen to the radio? Shouldn't it be coming in during your daytime, weekday drive time? When we know statistically most people listen to the radio, right? But they shouldn't be using their phone to call in and pledge <laughs> while they're driving. Right. But people can call from work. They can call from home. They can yeah. call while they're getting ready. They can call when they get back. So, you know, that's why drive time is four to seven. Not, you know, most people don't have a three hour commute. Yeah. But, but, but I think about that. Like if you have a lot of <laughs> listeners during a time when they're driving, um, sometimes those calls, those donation calls might come in later or at a different time. Sure. But if we look at like say public radio, that's your big time followed up by Saturday mornings. And that is, that is because that's when people are listening, Hmm. right? Saturday mornings. And, um, if, and a lot of community stations have big Saturday mornings, right? And that makes sense. A lot of people not working, but probably home leisurely breakfast, turning on the radio. It makes a lot of sense, right? If, yeah. if, but if, if your pledge drive revenues don't look like that, then what I'm, then what you're probably doing is leaving a lot of listeners under unserved at those times. And as a result, leaving a lot of donations on the table. So what I'm not saying is you, it doesn't mean you, you get rid of your cherry shows. If those are great shows, they bring in revenues, they get great hosts, keep them right. Uh, that's wonderful. What it means is you have work to do in other parts of your schedule because you have a big potential listenership that you're probably not serving that you could probably increase if you if you give them something more to listen to. And it's not like, oh, it's a folk show, so we should do more folk. It's no, there's a lot of people out there who can find your station when it has what they want. But likely the show that you have that's that people pledge to is well done, consistent in some fashion or another. Take those ideas and apply them to other parts of your schedule. I think this is clearly um, one of the primary topics of 2017 for Radio Survivor. I think we're going to be inviting guests on to, yeah. to to throw this idea in their face and see see how they react. So you know, we've I've received a lot of comments in places like Facebook, on Twitter, and some private emails, and I really appreciate everyone because I'm not really here to defend it. I don't really want to fight. I might be really, really wrong, but you know, I'm going to. I'm going to, you're, I'm going to press it. I'm going to press the issue. Right. Yeah. I, you know, um, I will, I will sort of be glad to engage in rigorous debate. I, just, I really think it is, even if you're not right about what you say, the answer is, I think that everyone that holds a little bit of power or a lot of power at community radio stations needs to think about that public access versus public <laughs> service model and have, and have clear, you know, the, the best case scenario is for your radio station for the entire community to have a g- agreed upon buy-in on 
policy that explicitly states what the what the ratio is supposed to be so that sometimes there's a reason why so and so is extremely nice and they've been working super hard but maybe they don't deserve to have seven hours on the radio every week just because they're the nicest hardworking person or deserve to have it in perpetuity yeah. until they either get bored retire and die and try to bequeath it in their will Pass to it their, on to their child which we've been there yeah so exactly and 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 to that i say you know also i open it up would you do you have do you you know so you certainly email us podcast at radiosurvivor.com let us know what you think we'd be glad to have you on if you want to write your own piece yeah. For Radio Survivor. That Directly rebutting. Great. We will publish it. Yeah. I'm not, not, not I will publish an excerpt, not whatever. We will publish it, right? We, we, we're we pretty open forum. We don't, not a lot of folks uh, contact us who at least who are, want to write about radio. Um, but those who have, uh, we work, we work with a lot of people and publish their stuff and, we will we will do that and and I'm willing to take my hands off of it if you don't trust me not to uh, not to try and, and, and edit it surreptitiously uh, you know I don't think you can get away with that I in think 27 yeah I think we're you know we're looking to hear we, you know we, this we if we don't talk about this then I don't think community radio can move forward and with so many stations coming online. I also want to say to you, if you're starting a new low power FM, think about these things. Not don't there isn't just one model for community radio. It doesn't just have to be one way. You don't, you know, and maybe you'll innovate a way, right? In the same way that Bainbridge Community Broadcasting innovated yeah. a way by not being radio, by yeah, being podcast. Tune into episode seventy two, right? That was last week. It was last week. Maybe you can innovate something. We'd love to hear about that too. But to to think about these these questions. Um, any last thoughts, Jennifer? Well, what I would love to hear in a future episode is um, from broadcasters that are part of public access centers, because that kept going through my head when I was reading your piece and when we've been talking today. You know, what if your whole reason is public access and you're literally a public access television and radio station and how does all that fit? Hmm. So I think that would be cool next time. And that's a, that's a frontier really. So in many ways, the existence of stations, community radio stations being attached to public access television channels is kind of new. It seems to, it, and it's really come with this newest, um, with this newest window, 2013 window for low power applications. Um, but we're, we're plugged in with that community. The, uh, the Alliance for community media is the, sort of the NFCB for public access TV, but they're increasingly have radio stations yeah. in their midst. I have a business card in my pocket. We'll have a guest on in 2017. We should, we should, we should have him on. Yeah. And that's a perfect question, Jennifer. Uh, that, that never occurred to me to pose that. So that's a, a really great direction for inquiry. Yeah. And I've been to, I've been to three or four public access stations. So it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, even some that predate this most recent window, there's mm-hmm. KDRT in Davis, California, that is oh, kind right. of a pioneering um, radio station in a public access center. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for bringing your arguments <laughs> to the table. And, and thank you to everybody who commented on Facebook, on Twitter, yeah. or sent me an email. Um, I've only mentioned names of people who I asked permission for, because many of these have happened in, in groups that are closed or semi-private. And I, I, I do not want to report anything out 
of that without someone's permission. So um, that's why I'm I'm not mentioning if, any yeah, names. Yeah, if, if Paul didn't mention your name and and you're uh, you're banging your fists against the table demanding to be heard, uh, reach out to us and repeat yourself, and we'll we'll get we'll get your voice amplified into this discussion. But absolutely, I appreciate all of it, and it's it's because I think only if we. We have to, and we have to test the idea, right? And the only way you test it is by, is by finding arguments, is by finding poking holes. So please uh, poke away. And thank you all for listening <laughs> to another edition of Radio Survivor. Jennifer, thank you for bringing us the Kachum yeah. tour. I was really excited when I heard you were doing it. Oh yes, it's always good to solve these radio mysteries. <laughs> I think that one may remain mysterious, but I think by design. <laughs> it's true, yeah. Elements of it were demystified. But yeah, I like it that way. Yeah, like dark hallways where radio stations uh, may or may not be located. I know, living in the shadows. <laughs> well, thanks so much. See you next week, everybody. All right. <laughs>